Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit ByteRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Claudia fontaine Chittister, and we'll be talking about her new book, Trusted Eye, Post-World War II Adventures of a Fearless Art Advocate. Trusted Eye is a compelling narrative of an American wife and mother finding her place amid the rubble of war-torn Germany. Virginia Fontaine fought continually for recognition as a woman, a photographer, an art curator, and perhaps most importantly, a liaison between beleaguered German artists and the outside world. Through journals, letters, and photographs, she recorded her uniquely intimate perspective on this period amid an ever-changing constellation of artists and friends. Regina Fontaine documented her life from a young age, her struggles at Yale Art School, her year as a newlywed in the British Virgin Isles, and her employment in a munitions factory. Later, she helped the Jewish underground in Europe, traveled with gallerists throughout Germany, Switzerland, and France. Trusted Eye is both a biography and a visual almanac, almanac for an intricate slice of the 20th century. For more information, you can visit Claudia's website, which is fontaine.org, and that's F-O-N-T-A-I-N-E dot org. And with that, I'd like to welcome Claudia to the show. Good day, Claudia. Good morning, Robert. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is my pleasure. This is um, I'm really interested to hear um, about your story and, and your mom's. Um, but I, I guess the, the first thing is I, I'd like to kind of, you know, in honor of her, can you tell us a, a bit about who Virginia Fontaine was kind of in that sense? So she was Midwestern. She was born in Milwaukee in 1915, in the middle of the First World War, just a few years before the first pandemic, the 1918 pandemic, and had um, learned her art skills from her grandfather, Paul Hammersmith, who was an etcher and had a printing company. And um, great-grandpa had um, funded her to go to Yale Art School, where she met my father, Paul Fontaine, and the two of them um, started their life together in Tortola, the British Virgin Islands, on a honeymoon for a year, and then he was drafted and went to Europe, uh, but in, but got a job there after the war because there weren't enough boats to come back and decided to stay there for a little bit and invited my mother to come over. And what started out as a six-month adventure ended up being 25 years. So she was one of these um, very strong wills, forthright. Um, and with a good moral compass and Girl Scout by heart, was a swimming instructor. I always called her fearless because she stood up to people easily and at the same time had a 
a good, uh, uh, well, she was, she knew her manners, let's put it that way. So she was comfortable yeah. in all situations. And that was uh, that was always something that was uh, I admired quite a bit as a child. Wow, quite um, a force, <laughs> a force of nature. Um, so, what was the inspiration for the book Trusted Eye? How did that uh, the seed get sown? So, I had been working on reading her letters and her diaries um, almost at least ten or fifteen years. When in 2017, um, and mostly I was doing that because I, I, they were so interesting and I wanted other people to get a chance to, to use the information because it was unique information she was documenting. And it turns out people in Europe uh, found me, found the website, and would use her letters and photographs um, in their documents because she was one of the few people that documented what was going on there. So, um, but I always felt that was my purpose was simply to help others write write their story and help her be the foundation. But we were, um, we, I live in Austin, Texas, and my sister and I were uh, going to Milwaukee for an art show of our great grandfather, the same great grandfather that supported our mother, and it was an art show of his etchings. And so we don't go to Milwaukee very often, but we went up there and it was a beautiful show. And then we had a day off. And I threw out, I'm a librarian by trade, and so I said, well, let's go to the Milwaukee Public Library. Plus, it's a huge, beautiful example of the Gilded Age architecture. It's just phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's two or three stories, and it's full marble and gold and columns. It's just fantastic. And we were walking through there, and our cousin, who we were staying with, yelled across the hall, is there another Virginia Hammersmith that's a painter in Wisconsin? And our, our jaws just dropped. There was this huge painting by our mother in this art show called the Wisconsin Women Artists. First of all, we'd never seen this painting. And it was just astonishing because it's, it's, in, it's in the book. It's a, we, have, we reproduced it in the book. And I said, wow. And then I saw the title of it, The Flood. I said, oh, in her letters, she wrote when she was at Yale almost every well, – she wrote every week, maybe twice a week to her mother – and she talked about doing the sketches for her, the flood. And this is over a two-year process or three-year process. It was not a you know, overnight achievement. And, right. and, and it may have been her final painting that where she, they did not pass her. They gave her a 69 out of 70, but I'm not positive of that. But in any case, I said, well, that was it. I said, that's, clearly it's time for me to write her story. Because the Germans or whoever were writing the books in Germany were only focusing on the German period. I wanted to tell the whole story of her Milwaukee background. I wanted to include more information about Wisconsin artists, the new year of art in the Wisconsin time period, the, the conservatism of Milwaukee itself and what she was up against in trying to break out and be her own artist. There were plenty of women artists in Wisconsin, but um, – you still have to find your own way. And so this is one of her tricks. And I thought, well, this is now I'm going to, I'm to find a way to correct the story that she was. By. And, and, the, and the painting is now owned by the Milwaukee Museum of Art, which is a fantastic museum. And to be in that collection among all those wonderful, um, yeah. So I, I was super proud to decide this had to be done. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful accolade, you know, and, and no doubt, you know, your mother in spirit is just very happy to have the recognition that she fought hard, you know, to, to achieve. Um, now, you mentioned um, Yale Art School, you know, and that she didn't 
get um, a passing grade and it's, you know, it's kind of um, questionable, you know, kind of, you know, why she didn't or how she didn't. But um, did she, I understand she had some struggles, you know, while she was at Yale Art School. Uh, can you tell us about her right. experience? Yeah, so that it's a really interesting story because the from the very first day when she was accepted at Yale, uh, my great grandfather brought her. She was, they said, well, the class is already full. They they thought they were pretty strict about doing fifty fifty. By the way, it was the only school besides nursing that accepted women in those days, and so, but they had an equal percentage of women to men, and in the first class, and they also put you in the class, you don't, didn't automatically start out as a freshman per se, they put you in the class where you would fit in your capability. And so she showed her portfolio because she had been taking art classes for a long time and she'd already gone to college um, a few years, so she had most of her you know, general requirements done for sure. So um, I think they put her in like the third year. It's a five-year program. Um, but it's, it's very, it's very it's hard to follow. I was never quite clear because some years were just packed full of classes that seem more introductory. But then the final, her fourth year, which she took in her last semester, just one class, the painting class. So that's her whole, all of her energy was supposed to go to that. But that's also the year that she was in love with my father, and the two of them were very close, sort of tied to the hip, and he also was getting through. It's a very difficult and rigorous program and I was also wasn't sure why in fact or what her character was like and before I even started writing the book I was just so curious because I had read in the letters about the fact that she was so shocked that she didn't pass I called up one of their classmates who was still alive and I didn't write about this in the book he was in his 90s Leon Hosipian from Worcester Massachusetts lifelong friend of my father's they had gone to art school together before at the Worcester Art Museum School. So they went to art school together with my mother. So he knew my mother very well. And so I asked him, and as I said, he's in his 90s, so, but he still seemed pretty sharp. And I didn't record this, and I should have, but he, I asked him, what was, what was it with mother? Why do you think that she didn't pass? And there was this long pause, and he said, well, she was just difficult. <laughs> okay, that doesn't help, but that's that's as good as it gets. <laughs> but anyway, it was rigorous for sure. And he said, "Well, they had standards," and I said, "Okay, well, I don't know what that means either." But um, and maybe that means that they had a quota that they were only going to allow so many to pass. And my father was at the top of the class, and as I said, he he would have had to go through that whole class that whole year again, and it was in the Depression era, which meant her parents would have to pay for her again. And I think. My grandmother sort of got frustrated and said, well, I guess clearly you're not a serious artist, and why don't you come home and learn how to cook? And that was that was hard. So she went back, and she did. She, but at the same time, she went back to Milwaukee and waited for my father to graduate. She did, I found, evidence in newspaper articles. She, she had entered herself in various competitions. She had, um, mm. had attended studio classes. She... Um, she tried to get a job with a woman who was writing a book about her life travels around the world, and she was going to sort of do the cartoons for her. So there's evidence that she didn't sit, sit back and learn how to boil an egg, but she actually, uh, you know, tried her best to yeah. keep up her chops. And then, then things really fell apart when they went to Tortola because at that point um, she thought she would be continue painting her, her medium as oil, 
My father also was oil, but what they found out there was that the thatch from the roofs of their, they lived in a hut, the thatch would fall down and stick to the oil paint. So my father, my father switched to watercolor because he was a master watercolorist also. His job, because Yale was funding him for that entire year in Tortola, the British Virgin Islands, his job was to paint 100 watercolors, 100 or something, and send them back to Yale. So as evidence there, and then they would get, send more money. As he painted, he'd send them, and then they'd send more money. And so she had, she couldn't, she also, she, so she thought she would photograph, but the locals wouldn't allow her to photograph them. So that's when she sort of took up writing about what what experience was like as an expatriate, you know, who she was meeting, the sort of the social life. And unfortunately, it's it's kind of sad. It really is kind of sad. But we have her photographs anyway of what she, of the environment, and we have her photographs of she and my dad and their little pussy cat, and and that's about it. But um, so that's 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 how that yeah. went south. Oh yeah, that's that's really interesting. Now, oh, you, when you were talking about uh, the ideas. When he had said that she was difficult, you know, that's the reason I just, I just flashed through my head. I, I know a couple artists who are, you know, recognized, accomplished, and both of them are very difficult people. I mean, it, it seems like it's, uh, you know, that, that creativity and difficulty um, kind of can sometimes go hand in hand. Yes, and I, I think you need that. You need that sort of selfish bone to you. Um, but mother really wasn't as nearly half as selfish as my father had. So um, I, I still it's a mystery what, she, what, what he meant. You know, maybe maybe yeah. she just didn't, didn't follow the rules as often as she's supposed to, didn't turn her assignments in on time. Maybe she, I knew she was a bit of a procrastinator when I was a child. I remember that, but I, I still, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the circumstances are, but but it certainly, I'm sure, added fuel to her fire to to at least continue, you know, to to not let it completely dampen the the spirit of um, artist in her. Oh yes, and I think she she, my father was always disgusted that they didn't graduate because it really was a heartbreak to her because she felt that she should have a degree in. <laughs> needed a degree in order to get a job and although in those days maybe it wasn't as necessary but maybe to, if you're fighting in a man's world it was required of, um, it was a chip on her yeah. shoulder most of her life and in fact she tried to finally get her her diploma after I was born in 56 uh, okay. she did, she did uh, long distance classes with the armed forces and you know but she was going to major in German she wasn't going to major in art <laughs> And then with that, she never, she never got a coupon. It was really, but she tried. She tried one more time. Yeah. Uh, well, that's good. You know, that's good. That, that fighting spirit. Now, I also understand that, um, as was common during that period, um, that she also had a, an employment stint in a munitions factory. Um, yes. So. Tell us, tell us about that. I mean, again, you know, I think, you know, during that period, that was uh, the Rosie Riveter type of uh, call to action. Yes, it was. And that's a really interesting art, letter. So I just want to remind the listener that the book is really her letters, her voice. I simply stitch in 
paragraphs in between to sort of give background. So she writes in her letter and um, to her mother about that because um, the men mostly were fighting off, or my father did have a job also in the musicians, munitions factory, but, um, but she was openly say how they were paid double of what she was being paid, but she was going to just keep working as hard as she could because, and she said, and she was the, um, and they made her a uh, a supervisor, and she would tell her mother how she hated wearing pants because they just weren't comfortable, and that she had to stitch together the pig gloves that she wore because her job was to check the filing. They were filing down the casings of the bullets, I think is what it was, and mm-hmm. um, she would call she would call these these other women punk filers. They just weren't doing a good job. She was t- tossing out their work. And she said they would come in drunk, and she had to fire one woman. And um, she, yeah, she, and it was long hours, but she was going to just keep working. And, and she had, she, she at that point was also my my older sister was born, so I guess my grandmother was taking care of her while she was at, at, at working. Um, and yeah, she she talks about how the, the the how busy people were in. In, in in Worcester area, especially, there was a lot of uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. There was a lot of of um, a lot of manufacturing going on to support the war. I think my father worked in a wire company, a wire factory, and my mother worked in munitions, so in doing inspections. So, yeah, she was proud of that because mm-hmm. she's pretty good at hiring and firing. I think <laughs> came naturally to her. Oh, the comes to punk workers. I mean, really, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but the but the, fi- the filing would actually go right through the glove, and so every night she'd have to stitch it back together again. That, I just can imagine the and, and her hands would be raw, and she would have to oil them up and also oil the gloves. And so I just it's just really hard hard work. And that I guess all that. But she was she was not afraid of hard work. She was also uh, athletic. She was on the on the field hockey team when she was in in high school. So. I think, yeah, she was, she wasn't afraid of hard work. Uh, wow, that's um. Now, the uh, later in her well, she at one particular point, uh, she was um, helping the Jewish underground in Europe. So and now, and I understand that this, um, you know, had to also there was there was a connection with her work with. Um, German artists. So I, I guess the first question would be, um, did did the underground come first or did the work with the artist, helping the artist come first, chronologically? I think I'm actually not sure because she never wrote about the Jewish okay. underground in any of her letters, so I have no actual date. But she, I, what I found was this is in a lecture she gave either – you know, way back in the 70s, late, much later when she was in Mexico, or it was in an article that she wrote to Yale. But in any case, she simply writes one paragraph that she and my dad were um, running money uh, down to Switzerland and to help the Jewish refugees get to Israel. And so that time period was 46, 47, because then when Israel became a state, that wasn't that was no longer, you know, became okay for everybody. Um, so when you, if you ever, um, let me finish a sentence here. So the um, the important part was that I think it was early on from there, but she also went to Berlin and also 
to the south of Germany with a friend, Hannah Becker. And I asked Hannah Becker's granddaughter, did, did Hannah Becker also do such things? And she said that she did not think so. Um, and Hannah Becker's uh, had a Jewish connections because she married a Jew, but he had left and gone back to – she was – he escaped Germany, basically, in the 30s. He was a famous musicologist, so Paul Becker, and fortunately got out of Germany. But so there's no, I have no exact dates, but the, the story about Hannah Becker is mother um, encountered the Monuments Man in Wiesbaden Museum, which is one of the collecting points for all the art that had been stolen by the Nazis. And she asked the Captain Edith Standen, she asked her um, who the collectors were in the area that Mother could meet, and Edith said you should meet Hannah Becker. And so Mother called her up, which is surprising that the phones even worked, and went to meet her and found this woman's home to be filled with this expressionist art that was forbidden to paint. These artists were forbidden to paint. So it seemed that Hannah wanted to open a gallery in Frankfurt to help these artists get back on their feet, and Mother because she was connected to the armed forces, my father was the designer for the armed forces in their publications. Um, she had access to a car. She had cigarettes. She had sugar. She had booze. She had gasoline. And, and Hannah needed to find these artists that had escaped the cities, um, mostly to the southern Germany because the food was more um, available there. And... So they drove, and Mother documented those those those. So I, almost, I would think the Jewish underground piece was a little prior, um, before yeah. uh, meeting Hannah, because she was completely consumed with doing whatever she could to help Hannah, um, and it was never documented. The other things, and, and also I think it was very it was a very it was very dangerous to be doing what they were doing, because Mother talks yeah. about that she saw in a newspaper article that a woman sergeant was caught with fifty thousand dollars on her and the train to Basel, Switzerland, and then was shipped back home. And Mother says, well, obviously this is too dangerous. But And the Americans were forbidden to help this way, but many were. So um, so they, uh, they they had to stop it. That is something. Well, um, we're about halfway through this show, um, Claudia, so I want to take just a quick break. And if you want to invite listeners, if you would like to call in with any questions, you can call in at 619-789-4359. Um, and then when we come back, um, I want to talk about the, the process that you went through to assemble all of this. Because, uh, you know, there might be people out there who have similar kinds of situations, and I think it might be good to hear how you went about it. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Everyone, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello. This is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us. And I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5 by 7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, 
Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Claudia Fontaine Tudister. She is the author of Trusted Eye, Post-World War II Adventures of a Fearless Art Advocate. Uh, For more information, you can visit uh, her website, which is Fontaine.org, and that's F-O-N-T-A-I-N-E. Dot org, um, and in, in addition to information about the book and her mother, you can also find uh, her father's painting there as well. So, uh, okay, Claudia, we're back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, okay, so now, uh, this, you obviously had a lot to work with as far as material, you know, and, and you know, with people out there, you know, discovering treasure troves, such as, as you did. Uh, can you tell us how you went about constructing your book from those materials? Well, thank you for asking that question, because it really was a labor of love and not knowing what the final product was going to be when I started this. Um, literally, when my father passed away in 1996, I was handed these plastic bags of letters, um, and then big photo album, guest books, diaries, mountains, I mean, boxes and boxes. And I would start opening it up, and I'd be sort of overwhelmed. and oh, gee, look at all this stuff. You know, how are we going to manage this? And I think that what I did is I tackled her diaries first because I just remember trying to read them years and years ago. Um, they're just two years' worth. It's not very much. It's two little books, but squished handwriting, she had this very beautiful upright left 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 uh she's a lefty um left style handwriting, but <clears throat> the blue ink would bleed through and be really squished and small some days and they're just packed with details and names and, and events and experiences and and she wasn't so much to talk about her feelings, it was more sometimes she would mention, you know, her opinion of things, which was really interesting. Um, but it was just too difficult to, to – and she's a terrible speller on top of that. So um, I decided to hire a transcriptionist, and I simply over the Internet found somebody, and she happened to be in New Jersey. I'm in Austin, Texas. Never met the woman, but I sent her some samples. I photocopied, and she transcribed and, and into Word document that I could then edit and make sense of. And – correct her spellings, make it more readable. I wouldn't complete her sentences, but I would at least make the, make the words, the right words. And mm-hmm. um, also she put a lot of German, put a lot of German in there too. I mean, it was, it was really quite, and then I would read them out loud. My sister and I would read them out loud to each other just, just because it was so much fun. So we try to make the whole um, event fun. Um, and then I decided that, well, this is even more difficult than I thought. So I created a database or an Excel spreadsheet and started putting in the names and, w- and what page the reference and things. And, 
And the Word document you can search on and you can use index features. So that became more, you know, just because so I could go back to this. You know, you have to, if you want to go back to something and find information again, if you don't have it indexed, you're, you know, you're, you spend all your time looking for things. So that was one process. Then, then I decided, well, I am a librarian by trade, but I decided, well, I knew the School of Information at University of Texas had a lot of students who needed internships. And I said, well, you know, maybe I get some free labor and very smart labor. And I, I had three interns help me. And so they, and they had archived classes. They were better archivists than I was. I mean, I had archived classes, but these people actually wanted to be archivists. And so they actually oh. put the letters the right, in the right file folders and, but I still had to read them and index them. But at least they were organized mm -hmm. in some way. And that took over a year. And then there was the process of scanning the photographs because in the, in the meanwhile, I had this website. And I would post things, and that's how people – and I would post a few letters, and that's how I got people – people were interested. I said, oh, people – and then they would say, well, do you have a photograph of so-and-so? And so I finally had the entire scrapbook scan – I mean, photographed by a professional photographer who happened to be a good friend of mine. So my recommendation to the audience is use your network of friends, interns, <laughs> people who are hungry for uh -huh. experience. Uh, you, there's a lot of them out there, and um, – and so my friend did the photography, and that was a huge money saver. I didn't have any money to do this. And so this, this, and that, this posting on the website allowed other people to, to find it. And then you have to be careful, of course, you can't post photographs of other people's art. But these are mostly mother's photographs. So I was okay in the copyright era area. And then I also got permission from other, I would find, the other really interesting part of this process is finding the children of some of these artists in order to get permission. Um, so that, um, for the books I've written, I had to do all that, sure that it was I wasn't breaking any copyright rules. But other than that, yeah, just getting, and then that was keep encouraging me. The more the more I posted, the more people found me and used the material, um, then I'd be encouraged to find more letters and post more things and post more more photographs and such. So, yes, it was definitely a process. And, and every – oh, then the third piece, so there's the photo albums and her diaries, her letters, was her guest books. The guest books was also the most – one of the most interesting things because you find the community of who knew who. And you had to figure out the, the signature and – some were quite obvious because I could correlate a letter at the same time where she said so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so, or the, a diary entry were at the house and we had a party. And by the way, <clears throat> her diary is like over 200 parties in a year. It's like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. How do you even do that? So, yeah, so I, I would just this, – this detective work, but just looking for uh, who these people were, and then the interesting part of like looking up on Wikipedia, see if there's a little information about this person. And and some websites actually give you signatures, which would verify things even more. And so yeah, I used I used all my research skills um, to to figure out who. And I think I'm like 97% done with the guest book. I'm still there are still a few names that are that that eventually. And then I also sent out to my German friends who know old German scripts because some of these people were quite old that came to Mother's house and were writing in German, old German script, which is difficult if you've never seen that before. So I said it to my German friends. I still belong 
do a German uh, called Kaffee Klatsch, like a coffee hour, and we all speak German, practice German together. And um, and they had experience with old German scripts, so I would send them pages, and they would say, "Oh yeah, that's that's how that's written." Like, oh, that's who that is. And and then I yeah, it was really super exciting. The whole process was really exciting. I encourage anybody who has any kind of material like that to research and then maybe find the children of or the grandchildren of these people. They might be really interested. That's sort of the ever ever the. Uh, it's a treasure trove of finding connections, and maybe this would be interesting to the grandchildren even to know that this information is out there. Right, and the roles that their um, ancestors played in the process. Um, right. Would be, yeah. Well, now, um, your mother also had experienced um, the international reach of uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy and his anti-communist um, activities. So yes. tell, tell us how, how that um, how that came about. So um, because Mother's many friends were journalists, artists, and also State Department people, um, mm-hmm. attorneys, all kinds of people that worked in the U.S. government, the McCarthy's reach was pervasive, especially in the State Department. He was sure, he was convinced that the government was just crawling with communists and they need to all be found out. And so, and even in Dad's newspaper, he worked at Stars and Stripes at that point. In 1953, he went and started working for them. Um, he, everybody was interviewed. And if somebody was targeted they would go and ask people, what do you know about that person's connections or background or uh, anything? And um, Or if you're interviewed for a job with the armed forces, you would be required, they would ask all your friends if you knew about anything suspicious or such. Well, my father played dumb because he didn't know anybody. He never paid attention to anything anyway, so it was quite obvious that he wasn't going to be helpful to anybody. But mother was so horrified by this, and because several of her friends were scrutinized for connections they made in college, you know, 10, 15 years prior, that um, somebody had a boyfriend that was later to be a communist. I mean, just such remote connections to somebody who might have been a communist. And and it was really, um, and she was angry because it was also, (laughs) McCarthy was from the state of Wisconsin, and her own mother was supporting him, and she just would write these scathing letters to her mother saying, how could dare you think? It's like somebody coming to your garden club and accusing so-and-so, some famous name in Wisconsin, of being a communist. And um, she she tried her very best to be supportive, but she just, some people were, you know, fired because of some very remote connection. And um, she she talked about that, and it was really, really heartbreaking to see that. Um, among her to her friends to be accused of something that was completely and then there was also the woman dancer Mary Wigman who was sort of the Martha Graham of Germany sort of founder of modern dance and mm-hmm. um, she was in, through and through an artist a dancer and um, after the war uh, she stayed in Leipzig which is at that point East Germany you know they expected all the artists to sort of quickly run to the west but the, the East, the East, Eastern Europeans, the Russians were supporting the artists. They knew, well, if we give them money and food and such, then they'd be better off. 
So Mary didn't jump at her she didn't jump to the west quick enough per se. And so when she finally at some point decided, well, I really do want to go west. I want to go to the United States to to dance. I want to go to Switzerland. I want to do all these things. She couldn't get papers. And because of her, you know, they accused her of being a communist. Well, she was a dancer. She was just trying to live. And uh, it was very sad. Mother tried so hard. Um, eventually, she did get her papers. She, but she, mother pulled every connection she could with writing about Mary Bigman and um, helping make connections for her to people in the State Department and such to to finally get her uh, get her the right papers. And she finally got out. But it was it was um, mother worked hard at that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, you know, and I mean, it was a, you know, a truly a, a rough period for artists, um, artisans, and now we don't have the, that kind of McCarthyism going on right now, but we have a real, um, I don't know, a, a real upsurge of the idea. Now, this is not connected to your mother, but this is kind of what I want to, um, Talk to you, the librarian. You know, we've had the, the recent idea of, of certain books being banned. We've got publishers not republishing some um, books right. because of. So, as a librarian, what is your view of what's going on? Oh, it's it's horrible, and I think you know, even our in Texas, we have a particularly difficult. I'm um, to use the word difficult there. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. government believing that they can just tell people that these books cannot be used in schools, that they don't send the right message. Um, and I, I, and I, as all good librarians do, we, we always just, we put it out there anyway. We do not, we do not allow, I mean, they used to, you know, even scrutinize people's, uh, the checkout cards. And so that became private information finally. And so, and the librarians were very careful not to, not to divulge, but that's that's what officials would do is they would look at people's checkout cards to see if somebody was reading communist material, um, and, or associated. It was just and, and nowadays doing this this banning thing again is is just horrible. And I think as in the past, we will always be for always being on the side of telling both sides of every story, um, being open about it. It's it's, it's truly horrifying, but we will. I think we will persevere as long as we have, as long as the people are made aware of this, not putting, keeping their heads in the sand that this, somebody else is going to take care of it. Everybody has to play their part in speaking up for it. Yeah, that's that's important, you know, um, for good people to speak up. I mean, the, the well, good intentions people, you know, as well as those that are, you know, ill intentions. Um, the, you know, because I want to them bad people, <clears throat> but the, the ideas um, aren't um, really supportive of uh, an open in free society, you know, and, and it's, um, you know, to me, well, yeah, it, I, I don't, right. I don't remember that, that particular period, but it, it sure feels like it. Yes, and I can, and, and people have to, that's why people need to learn history and read history. And, and learn how people fought against it. What what was the underground resistance like in every society? And um, I think the and, and it's open communication, and it's also just the facts. And so the idea that there's misinformation is also a big problem. And we have to constantly be unveiling what the actual facts are. And 
in every conversation when you when you you might get riled up when someone is giving you misinformation. You don't go back and tell them they're wrong. You say, these are the facts, and these are my sources. We're very – librarians are sticklers on where the source is, where did it come from. And I was very careful, and uh-huh. I was as well, to do that, to just document it over and over again. This is what all the sources are. So um, it's, a, it's a history, and the telling of history is a really important um, effort, and – and also people's personal stories can corroborate also. So it's, it's, it's also the facts, but it's also people's personal stories. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that. Because, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I had one other one librarian friend, you know, and I already asked her, and, and very much her, her uh, perspective is, is 100% in line with yours as far as, you know, a, a librarian creed, I guess, you know, as far as what we're, you know, what to, what to stand by. Um, so what what do you hope, Claudia, that the readers will take away um, from reading Trust to Die? Well, I, I I try to make the book a, a balance of, of art as well, and the photography sort of showing what the environment was like, so you have a historical sense of what it's like. But that the person who reads it will be will find my mother's sense of humor, uh, will find an easier read, sort of an easier way to get through history, to see all the different, these chapters are very short, lots of photographs, and as I said, it's her voice. So you get a sense of a real personality that comes through, so it's a way of learning history or experiencing history. And um, that's a little bit different, and it's also now in the 21st century, we don't have letter writing as, as a, uh, a mm-hmm. duty that you do every day. That's not something that's up there with cooking your food. It's, it's, it's in, those, in those days, that was something that you did almost every day. You, you, had, you made thank you notes. You wrote letters. You, you wrote letters in triplicate and sent them to different people, um, and, and you recorded. And that was the one way to record because we didn't have – and we didn't have cell phones either. That's one of communicating. Telephones were barely working, but or you used to use the telegram as one, one, one way to get information quickly to people. But um, I find that this just it gets. I think you get a real sort of 360 sense. Plus, even her clothes were so fantastic. You know what people wore and um, and how she. You know, even her efforts. Because there are many arcs in the book. All the different things that she tried to do to earn a living try to get her photo essays published and mostly being shot down, uh, try to get a job, but finally they wouldn't accept her because she was married. Um, she does, she does, she is successful being a curator of art, uh, but the third, but, but the third round of doing that, and this is years of doing it without pay, by the way. This is just doing it for covering her costs. Uh, and then not getting actual recognition. All she wanted was recognition, her name in the brochure saying that she was the important person part of this. So she did very a lot for very little and and that's okay because ultimately that's what gives that made I mean and her network of women and men who appreciate her ability to get things done and fix problems for people, um, the network how important it was to have that support and she was loved by so many people. So I just want people to be able to read this, get a sense of the 20th century life. Yeah, it's great. And and uh, what it's like to be passionate, you know, to be passionate yeah. about something and going and doing it. Yeah, that's, that's a real important lesson as well. So, 
Well, Claudia, I really want to thank you for your time today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and, and learning about your mom. And uh, thank you again for your time. Thank you so much, Robert. It was a pleasure for me as well. Great. You're welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest is my Claudia Fontaine Chittister. We've been talking about her new book, Trusted Eye, Post-World War II Adventures of a Fearless Art Advocate. And again, you can find out more by visiting her website, which is fontaine.org, and that's F-O-N-T-A-I-N-E dot org. And everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.